You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to America's Web Radio and the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and I'm here with an amazing guest, my good friend, Sarush Golchin. Sarush is a device manufacturing rep that works with me in my operating room. I've been working with him for a long time. He and I are going to expose a lot of the inefficiencies in healthcare today in order to help us get a better understanding of why we are advocates for free market medicine and why we are so opposed to socialized medicine. We've got a big show today. We're going to talk a lot about that, a lot of the inside baseball stuff involving the inefficiencies of hospitals and how they are completely disconnected from the cost of health care and how their efforts to control costs really doesn't do a great job at controlling the costs and they affect the care that we're able to deliver to patients. On the second half of the show, we're going to talk a lot about coronavirus. I know it's on everybody's mind. I'm going to give you my insights based on my knowledge and experience. Um, just to let everybody know, my practice, which involves five locations and a surgery center, has been nearly at full capacity for the entire time. We've done, we've implemented the CDC guidelines and some common sense policies and procedures such as washing hands and reasonable social distancing within the clinic, and we haven't had a single incident. I want to dig into the numbers a little bit, and hopefully as we discuss that a little bit today, we'll be able to calm people down. I know in my own household, my wife has been redline hysteria the entire time, uh, and I want to be able to give you guys some information so that you can make your own decisions and hope, hopefully calm down. I do feel confident that we are most likely getting ready to open up the economy. It's the smart thing to do. We're going to dig into this. It's going to be a great show today. Sarush, Welcome. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Dr. Barber. Appreciate you having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So um, uh, I'm a vendor uh, rep with Arthrex, and uh, I've been doing this for about seven, going on eight years total, uh, six years with Arthrex, two with a previous company. Before that, I was actually in clinic as an MA, so I was able to take some of that knowledge from clinic transfer it over to the vendor rep world, and it gives me a, a good perspective of what we're going to talk about today. Awesome. So I'm just going to let everybody out there know I call Saroosh Baba Ganoush yeah. is my, uh, <laughs> yeah. my, my name for him. So right. um, I'm going to refer to him as Baba Ganoush because it's distracting for me to try and use the name I don't normally use. So Baba Ganoush, Sir. one of the things that's really amazing about you and the reason that you and I work so well together is that you have knowledge and experience from both sides of the equation, meaning you've been a clinical, uh, you know, you've delivered clinical care and you understand the challenges there, and then you work on the device side. Sure. And that's helpful to me sure. because you and I intersect with our expertise, and in the end, we come out with a better product and service for our patients. Right, absolutely. And I think that is... Um that's one of those kind of intangibles that having that helped me transition that allows me to be able to have conversations with surgeons like yourself a little bit beyond just being a box opener what we call which is reps bring value to the room help you and ultimately our goal is to help you provide you a service provide a product provide knowledge whatever that may be to help you give the best care for your patient exactly and just for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with what a device rep is 
they're representative. They represent a company that's selling us product, and we refer, we refer to them affectionately as reps. So when a surgeon goes into an operating room, whether they're a plastic surgeon or a urologist or an orthopedic surgeon, they usually have a representative from companies involving the device that you're using. So in my line of work, I use a lot of plates and screws and anchors and a, a variety of different devices that are really impossible to explain to people. But suffice to say, you provide me equipment that helps me perform surgery on my patient and do a better job. And our relationship is important because when I set up a surgical schedule, like you and I, when we're done with this podcast, we're going to go over to my surgery right. center. We've got a bunch of cases today. today. I have to trust you that you're going to have what I need that's going to be there. It's going to be ready to go, that you've worked with my OR staff to educate them on what they need to know in order to make this occur seamlessly and without any complication. And you and I both know what a disaster it can be when a rep does not perform their duties. Right. They don't bring the proper equipment. It can be right. a disaster. Yeah, no, and to further on that point, I think it's not just what you need, but what could go wrong. So I think a lot about disaster scenarios, just, you know, you and I always talk about in the OR, I'm, I'm really good at this because I've seen the bad of it. And uh, I've been in that situation. I've seen other reps from other companies where I've had to bail them out, even though it's not my product. So a lot of times I think outside the box, based on my experiences, based on experiences with surgeons in the OR, um, things that I've heard from my peers from other companies, uh, from my own company, from other territories, uh, etc. And again, ultimately, in our mind and our job is to help you. We want to be an extension of you and your staff um, to provide the best technology, the best procedures, the most efficient ways of doing procedures without compromising quality um, to help you treat your patient. So the underlying theme of this show is really to compare and contrast free market medicine with socialized sure. medicine. And ostensibly, that's what those are your two options. We understand, at least my regular listeners, understand that Plato described healthcare as being from the perspective of the state. So the policies that they implemented regarding healthcare right. were always to benefit the state and not necessarily the individual. Right. We follow Hippoc or yeah, we follow Hippocrates. We take the Hippocratic oath. We sure. don't take the Platonian oath. And the Hippocratic oath ostensibly is do no harm. Hippocrates was very much about the individual. And that is really what healthcare in the United States has traditionally been predicated on is a doctor-patient relationship is formed where the doctor's fidelity is to this patient, not to an employer or some somebody else, and that there's a special relationship where doctors and patients can communicate honestly and openly. A doctor, you know, the term doctor means teacher. Sure. Our, our job is to educate patients on the nature of their illness or injury and to provide them guidance in making their own decisions about how they handle their health care. In a socialized system, we have this top-down, government-run, one-size-fits-all program. And you and I both know from the yeah. inside that comparing socialized medicine to free market medicine is ridiculous. Right. The, the, it's not the same product. The, the, uh, when people talk about health care, the things that we're most concerned about are quality of the product, cost, innovation, and access, right? These Correct. are the things that we're really talking about. And when you talk about when people use the term healthcare and they try to switch to socialized medicine, you and I both know that you're talking about a very different product, that the access 
is much less. Limited, the quality absolutely. is is off the charts less. The right. cost actually is more. Right. You may not be paying it at the point of service, but the overall cost to our society in the form of taxes and things like that is dramatically uh, increased, and the quality of what we're given in return right. is dramatically decreased. Sure. And then we also like to talk on this show about the four ways to spend money. The great economist... Milton Friedman talked about the four ways to spend money. You can spend money on yourself. Cost matters. Quality matters. You can spend your money on somebody else. Cost matters. Quality not so much. It's not for you. You can spend other people's money on yourself. Quality matters. Cost is totally irrelevant. It's somebody else's money. And then the worst way to spend money is spending other people's money on other people. Neither cost nor quality matter. And that's what essentially socialized medicine is. And that is exactly what we get. The cost is irrelevant. We see waste, fraud, and abuse all the time because the people that are monitoring the cost, and we're going to talk about this now in in our relationship, it's not their money. So they don't really care to to pay attention too much, and certainly quality is completely irrelevant. Right. So anyway, let's get into it. I, I would just say that one of the things I learned when I first got out of training and I started practicing on my own, I really had no concept and no concern about the cost of products. I would go into the operating room, and if I was going to do a knee replacement on a, a, an old lady that was 100 years old that you know didn't walk very much more than just around the house, or I was going to do it on a 40-year-old person who runs, I would use the most expensive, um, you know, top shelf implant with no consequence of the cost or no even thought of the cost. And I think over the years, and you, you can explain this maybe in a little bit more detail, over the years as a doctor takes his patients to the hospital, we the, the hospital administration has no idea what they're not medically trained, so they don't know what we're doing. We're using implants, and I think in a lot of cases, device manufacturing representatives would get in there and manage to sort of jack up that cost because nobody was really supervising them because they were disconnected. And now that I have my own surgery center, and it's my job to deliver the care to the patients, make sure that they get treated well, I'm also footing the bill for the cost of the products that I use. So I have to take all of that stuff into consideration. And as a result, I'm more economical with how I use my resources and my patients get a much better product. Right, absolutely. So I think there's what we used to call those golden, as reps would say, the golden years of of the time that you're talking about coming out of training where you kind of came in. The market wasn't also as saturated with vendors and products and stuff. You had a few of the big players, and you could come in and you drive up costs, and specifically at the hospitals. The hospital vendor relationship especially is a challenge now because it requires these value analysis committees and costs and money financials that have been dispersed on sometimes not the most efficient stuff. So for us, as you know, and... um, we take a lot of time. We talk about stuff. We talk about it at your surgery center now. We talk about certain things, whether it's insurance-related, non-insurance-related. Hey, you know, you Sarush, Baba Ganoush, I've got this situation. Patient, you know, is but I need to do what's best for him. Doc, I got you. No problem. Right. So you and I, I always talk about this, the, the way the free market works. I, I learned long ago from the food industry. They talk about they don't make money. They don't make a profit on everything they sell. Right. They make a profit on the meal. Sure. Meaning, you know, you get a burger, you get a Coke, you get fries. 
they might not be making much money on the burger. They might make a little money on the fries, but they make a lot of their money on the Coke right. because it costs cents and they can charge a dollar for it. So you're making some money there. And the thing is you can afford to lose some money on the burger because you're making some money on the Coke. And that's kind of how I run my business. At the end of the day, I have to have all of my patients walking out of there going, I got the best possible health care I got. Sometimes I can do that and make a nice profit. Other times I, I lose money. Right. And I'm able to talk to you about it. Hey, how do we handle this situation? And you guys, because I'm a customer of yours, sure. you accommodate me and you help me so that we can make this work so that at the end of the day, our patients get what they need in order to get a good outcome. In hospital settings, they don't have any under, understanding of the intricacies that. of what we're spending money. They don't know what's important and what's not important. So they do these one-size-fits-all you know, cuts with a machete to just kind of stop costs. And what you get is very significantly decreased number of services in healthcare, and you get a poor quality of it. Right. Well, think about sometimes when you've called me about just arthroscopy equipment at certain places that's outdated, that doesn't work properly. And I know you always tell me in the OR, you change the color of the suture sometimes, <clears throat> and it could, it could mess you up. Little things like that that could be easily fixed if you had the right people in these these value analysis committees that hospitals have that there's not a lot of doctors or specific patients. I mean, uh, it's not patients, excuse me, specific providers, clinicians that are on that to that experience on ground zero in the OR. I mean, I think a lot of these C-suite MBAs and listen, I'm not trying to knock anybody, but they don't really understand what happens there. You know, I can give you an example if you indulge me for a second, but um, it was, I was at a late night case and it was at a hospital. Don't need to say what it was, but a multi-lig late night 300 pound patient it was a little bmi that's why we were doing it at the hospital but it's a multi-lig it's an acl it's a pcl it's a lateral collateral ligament i mean that's not so an easy case so, so baba ganoush is right. describing a multi-ligament reconstruction yeah. Sorry, in the me, knee. Yeah. so it's a pretty complicated yeah, a case. complicated case at a hospital setting late night which is not typically the normal ortho team i mean to the scrub text defense comes up to me and goes i don't do these cases Okay, so now I know i got to be on top of it. Which, by the way, that would never happen in my surgery Correct. center. My, I, my patients get top-level care all the time. We don't have what we call the second team in the hospital. Correct. You get the people who come in at night that kind of a lot of times will have sure. the attitude like, you know, I'm just punching the clock punching and the clock. you can't expect anything. And they've not been incentivized to do other. They don't exactly. have skin in the game. Now, that's what the beauty of you having your own surgery center, you've worked so hard to get there, right, because you've experienced what I'm talking about. So we get into the case late night, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they've got one ACL tray. An ACL, it's got instrumentation. That's the stuff that, that I would bring in typically. One screwdriver. Well, the screwdriver falls on the ground. Well, it's not sterile. Okay, now we've got a lot of work to do, and I get to the circulator, and I say, hey, you know, Miss So-and-so, we need to get this re-sterilized. In an autoclave, and an autoclave for those that are listening is a essentially it is like a microwave. It, it it's the washing machine, right? The exactly dishwasher. the dishwasher, but it does it in a fast fashion, safely sterile. That's the whole purpose of this machine. It doesn't do anything else. You wouldn't believe the chaos that it costs to get this one instrument that you absolutely needed. And the questions that I got while the operation is still happening is, well, can we use another company? No, you can't use another company because he's using. Arthrex, which is my company, our screwdriver yeah. is specific. Yeah, the screwdrivers are not interchangeable. No, they're not interchangeable. Companies. This is not like a Phillips forehead. I mean, it's 
And what we're really describing here, too, is real-time critical thinking right when things don't go right perfectly. There. Time zero. And we got a bureaucrat who's getting themselves involved and, in the case and making it impossible. And they're to, following protocol, and they're yelling at me. I'm getting in trouble. Right. Well, so we you're basically to, bending over backwards to try and solve right. the problem. So I'm like, listen, guys, I'm not trying to go beyond your protocol, what have you. I'm telling you there is a surgeon in this room with a complex case, and this instrument is vital, and I have have no way around it. Right. And just to kind of connect the dots for everybody out there, years ago as a surgeon, I used to be a customer to the hospital. So I would go out into the world. I would earn patients by delivering good quality care. Patients would like me and trust me. I would develop a reputation by doing work. People would have good results from that work and spread that in the community. And as a result, the hospitals would court me. They, sure. I would be their customer, and they'd say, Dr. Barber, we got a nice lounge with free Cokes, and we got a great surgery center that's easy to use or you know, a surgery suite in a hospital. And over time, what happened is hospitals' systems, because there's always this tension between what I call big medicine, the hospital systems, the insurance companies, and government, they basically want to control healthcare, and the reason is is because there's money and power in the control of healthcare, right. and they're doing this at the expense of patients. Well, hospitals started to realize that with these rogue doctors taking care of patients and doing what's in the best interest of the patient, it's making it hard for us to control our costs and to make our money. So what we need to do is drive the doctors out of business, which is what happened for decades, just decreasing reimbursement and making it impossible for doctors to make a living. And when this happened, which really happened in earnest with the pass passing of Obamacare, 53% of doctors are now employed by the hospital systems. And once that happened, it really – once the, the majority of doctors became employed by the hospital systems, it really gave the power to the hospitals and sort of has – taken the place of this doctor-patient relationship because now as an employed physician, I can't really do for my patient what I want to do. I have to do what the hospital tells, tells me. And that's where these rules sort of came in about this is what we're going right. to do. Reps are right. not allowed to touch the the implants. Which the is red the, hat. Because the red they hat were, because, Yeah, because they're afraid that the reps will right. open things and create a cost for the hospital, right. so they want to take you out of it. But in a practical way of speaking, that's the dumbest thing you can do. Who has more experience handling these My implants <laughs> than the rep who right. sells them and right. does it all day, every day? Right. So they've really created kind of all these problems that have kind of interfered with the way that we deliver our health care and the quality of it. I can just tell you, on as a side note, I remember working at a hospital uh, nearby. I still work there. Um, there was an implant I needed, and they said they blocked me from using it. So I'm in the case, and I cannot use it. They tell me where the hospital says you're not allowed to use it, and I'm like... I'm in, in the middle the, of your case. Yeah, I'm in the middle of this case, and I've done it forever. What are you talking about? So I had to figure out how to get around that problem without using an implant I always use and I still use. They then had a hospital meeting, a surgery meeting that was a month and a half away. So I wait for that meeting. I get there. I sit in this hours-long meeting, and then they bring it up. Okay, on the docket is the discussion of this implant. Uh, anybody know about it? No. Dr. Barber, yeah, I'm the only one who does hip scopes here. They asked me, so what's the situation? And I basically explained, yeah, I need it. And they went, okay, we'll approve it going forward. And I'm thinking to myself, are you kidding That's me? It. This is how this is going to be for every implant. And it's not just that. It's every single decision right. and maneuver that a hospital makes these days is with this sort of top-down bureaucracy, 
not really understanding the medicine or the delivery of care. It's just a bunch of numbers. Uh, and we're going to kind of get into this, as, uh, into the coding of the uh, coronavirus, too, as to, to how that is right. influenced by this. But people need to also understand over the years, when I decide to use a rep, I, I, I use companies that have a good quality rep, meaning I trust you that you're going to tell me the truth. You're going to be there on time. You're going to have what I need. When I get into trouble, you're going to have thought through things that I haven't even thought of. So right. you kind of bail me out right. because, you, hey, other doctors have done this and this is the solution. It's like, oh, good thing you were here. And then I've also had reps who, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't bring the screwdriver. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm late. Oh, I got to leave now. And you're sitting there like, hey, man, I got a case right here and I got a patient that needs you. I can't just have you not show up when I get to a case. And it's like I get on the phone. Hey, where are you? Hey, listen, man, I'm stuck in traffic. It's going to be an hour before I get there. I can't have that stuff. And that's why I use you. And and when I say use you, I mean, we, we do business together. Right. We we work with each, each other. other. We right. have a business relationship. And at the end of the day, that business relationship makes the the product that we give to our patients much much better and i know in the past they uh, the the entities that be were were always concerned about you know the so-called anti-kickback meaning if a doctor uses your stuff that you're going to start paying me to use your stuff and on the surface that maybe seems like a reasonable thing to do to prevent doctors from doing that but in real life in a free market People ask me, how much do you charge for this? Well, I charge as much as I can. That's what everybody does in capitalism. And the things that control the cost is competition, meaning other people do it for less, do it better for less. And so I'm constantly on my toes trying to figure out better ways to deliver my care, higher quality at a lower cost. And you are doing the same thing to me. And so our relationship is not one of you know a backroom deal with cigars and kickbacks not at all it's one of a mutually beneficial thing it's good for me it's good for you and it's great for For the patient patient. and that's that's the kind of full spectrum of continuum of care from a vendor from a rep doctor perspective that i look at when i for example like when i go to bat for you even with my own company you know there are certain things that from a corporate standpoint maybe not always is you know, we work together to get creative, find ways that help you out from a efficiency standpoint, from a cost standpoint, but also doesn't sacrifice the quality and the stuff that you want to use. The stuff that's comfortable in your hands that you know is going to work, that gives the 110% performance quality for your patient. Because at the end of the day, that's what matters. I mean, that's the biggest point in this. And, and what we can do from a vendor-doctor relationship is you're running a business, I'm running a business. We come together, we get creative, we get creative with the staff, however it may be, to control certain costs that you know maybe you don't get reimbursed on. And then you think about long game, right? Things that cost you money, well, hey, Doc, you know what? That shaver right there, let me discount that for you. You don't get reimbursed for the shaver. You put it in you know, your cost analysis, you put it in your, your uh, case preferences, your preference cards, if you will, um, 
and, and you do it obviously all legal. So right? yeah, what 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 Baba Ganoush is talking about is nickel and diming. Right. Right. You go to a typically reps would go to a hospital and they would nickel yeah. and dime. You know, uh, they do an anchor here and a, right. you know a suture there and things that you might not necessarily need for the case. He doesn't do that to me because he's not playing right. for that one case. He wants my business in the long run, and he knows that if he nickels and dimes me, I'm going to go elsewhere. And so. What we try to do is be economical about the case, and that's very important because we always are working to do what's best for the patient, but we always have an eye towards the cost, and this matters because cost is always passed on to the consumer, and the cost of our healthcare bills is way out of whack and in no small part because the people that are managing it from the top are wasting money, and they're creating these massive uh, costs to us, and it's being transmitted to us in the forms of premiums and deductibles. And now we got this scam where, you know, I, I talk on this show a lot about how big medicine has gotten together, meaning government, uh, big pharma, big pharma the, big the, um, the health insurance, insurance companies, and the hospital CEOs. systems. Right. They get control of all the dollars, and then they gouge the patient, and then they kind of spread the money around themselves. And they've been doing this forever. I mean, this has been going on for decades. It's just gotten so out of control now that we have, like in my case, I have massive deductibles, massive premiums. I drop $30,000 a year on my health care for my family before I even access the system. And then if somebody does get sick or injured, my deductible is so high, I'm paying cash for it. So it's quite a scam that they got going on there. Absolutely. And then, again, it translates to that same health insurance that you pay for from a vendor uh, perspective, which is you know what I'm speaking on is my product sometimes, most of the time, doesn't even cost that much to you. But then the hospital will gouge it up three to four times the price. Right. And I noticed that one yep. time in an EOB, an explanation of benefits, while we were having this cap pricing uh, conversation, sometimes you know we have to have these conversations with these um, hospitals, and they cut my legs out from underneath me. Right, and so what? What he's well, talking they don't about? Do that, that to the patient, right? They keep the same price for the patient. Well, the the scam in healthcare, and that's really what this is going to be on. Uh, you know, what we'll be talking about forever on the doctors' lounge is how the powers that be are trying to disconnect patients from the money that they're spending in healthcare because it makes it easy to scoop it up and. Just by a simple example, a knee replacement. So what the hospital system does now that they have all the power, meaning they they employ the doctor. So it used to be as the doctor, I would earn the patient. The patient would come to me. I'd have the relationship with the patient. We'd come in to go do the total knee, and I'd say, hey, I'm using arthrex to do this total knee. Sure. Now the hospital, because they employ the physician, tells the physician, no, 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 you're going to use another company to do the total knee. You cannot use arthrex. And what they do, they have the relationship with the other company and they say, listen, man, I'm going to give you all the joints by blocking out all the competition, but you're going to sell it to us for a bare bones price. And then the hospital gets control of that implant and then jacks it up a ridiculous number. And then that's passed off onto the patient. And it's this sort of disconnect that is destroying healthcare because it's destroying the doctor patient relationship and it's 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 creating it's killing the free it's, market it's well and it's creating perverse relationships between doctors and patients where my fidelity is to the hospital meaning I might believe that this knee replacement is better for you but I'm going to use a different one because the hospital employs me and I don't want to get fired and 
you know, this is kind of the other thing I really wanted to get into today about how our relationship really improves healthcare. And people who don't do orthopedic surgery or surgery in general, as you develop things, when I first started in healthcare, when I first started as an orthopedic surgeon, we used to do distal radius fractures commonly. I mean, it's still one of the most common injuries. People fall and they break their wrist, sure. and it kind of goes into the joint. And we used to adapt these, what we call T-plates, that would have these three huge screws. It was really difficult to fix. Sure. And over time, companies like yours developed this locking plate that I think is one of the great innovations in all of healthcare, where it's got these screws and this plate that is perfectly designed to solve this problem. And and has dramatically improved the outcomes, the convalescence, and really overall de- decreased the cost in terms of lost work hours and hospital stays and all that kind of stuff. And we're going to get into that a little bit more when we come back on America's Web Radio and the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber here today with Baba Ganoush Sarush Golchin. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. I'm here with my good friend, Baba Ganoush, Sarush Golchin, and we've been talking about the inefficiencies in hospitals and with government-run healthcare as it rela- relates to device manufacturers. Sarush is my Arthrex rep, which means he's the guy who sells me a lot of the equipment that I use when I do my operations. And we were just talking before the break about um, the innovative aspect of device manufacturers. So I'm sitting in there doing an operation. I'm a medical guy, so I know things about medicine. And I will express to you problems like, hey, man, I have a hard time connecting this to that. Or when this bone is broken, how do I fix it? You're able to go back to engineers and a laboratory and and say, hey, listen, I'm out in the community with these doctors, and this is a problem we need to solve. Tell me a little bit about that. So if you'll indulge me a little bit, Doc, uh, the president and founder and CEO of our company, Reinhold Schmieding, believes in exactly what you just said to the T. I mean, our motto is helping surgeons treat their patients better. And out of all the big companies that that are out there, we're the only one that's private. We don't have a board of MBA directors. It's the advisors are all clinicians. So they understand medicine. So they understand medicine. They've been there at time zero. They've Doctors like yourself, 20, 30 years of experience, have grown with technology in the orthopedic realm. 
uh, PAs. So it's 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 a beauty and exactly what you're talking about that you could sit down, we could sit somewhere and say, you know what, I think this thing would be better for this knee ACL procedure. What if we could do this angle or this for this specific <laughs> instrument? beauty of it is you get down to Naples, Florida, our headquarters, you sit with the product manager, you sit with the engineers, you sit with peers like yourself and say, you know what, I've had that same problem. If it's a great idea, you put pen to paper, we have the machines down there, and they build it. Just recently, we did two all-inside PCL reconstructions, and I'll let you discuss that. But anyway, it's the latest and greatest technology in a surgery that in the past you explained to me, man, this is it's been a challenge to really get confident placement of your uh, sockets or tunnels, if you will, and that guy that we brought, that's Arthrex made, that you loved, said, "Man, just nails it every time." So that's part of my joy and kind of the proud reason that I love being, you know, with the company that I am, is because it kind of falls in line with everything that we're discussing today. Is it allows us the freedom, or allows you the freedom to? I could call one of my product managers today if we had an issue in the OR and say, I've got Dr. Scott Barber here. He's an Arthrex guy. He has this concern. We could get somebody on the phone and you could get a result right then and there. Or I could call a surgeon in a different state that has maybe done 100 more of those procedures and they'd sit down and talk to you. And, you and could, we've actually done that in the past actually, where you've gotten surgeons on the phone that absolutely. did something more and I've And I think them. that just allows kind of sort of that, that freedom um, to be adaptable, the freedom to, at the end of the day, you guys are the ones that are treating your patients. You guys, we're here to be an extension of you to provide it. And if we can do that free reign, what's the problem? Yeah, you know, it's funny that you bring up the posterior cruciate ligament reconstruction. So people who are not familiar with the knee, you have four major ligaments, one on the inside called the medial collateral ligament, one on the outside called the lateral collateral ligament, and you have two ligaments on the inside called the cruciate ligaments. The anterior cruciate ligament is in the front, and the posterior cruciate ligament is in the back. Anybody who's familiar with knees kind of knows that the anterior cruciate ligament is the sexy one. That's the one that professional athletes blow out all the time. They get it fixed, then they get back in the game. When I was a young athlete, that was a career-ending injury to have your ACL torn because there wasn't a lot. It wasn't a very reproducible way of fixing it. And I've been doing PCLs now for almost 30 years. And... I think the last two that we did are the first two I've ever done where I walked out, that is money, top to bottom. Like, I know that's going to work. And PCLs have some issues about them that make them more difficult to do compared to ACLs. And when I talk about, um, I mean, reproducibility, meaning you go in, you do it every time. When I do an ACL, I know every time that thing's going to be money. And it's not just me. I mean, it's it's a tried and true operation, and it's become very reproducible. The PCL, though, because of the way it's designed and the way it's put together, it makes it difficult to reproduce. And so we had a lot of things that improved over time and on this last one we did there's a guide that helps me drill the tunnel into the tibia and it's very important to precisely place that tunnel and then there's another tunnel in the in the thigh bone side and that's really the big thing and then the next thing is passing the graft mm-hmm. because you have these acute turns that make it difficult technically sure. to get this done and then over time for whatever reason the graft loosens up over time when you're done with the procedure and you get six months out a year out and you're like eh, it's not perfect it's a little lax and so you're less um 
motivated or not motivated, but you know, you're less inclined to do a PCL on somebody unless it's really loose. Obvious, sure. Because it's hard to guarantee that you're going to make it better. Well, now that's done. That's that's out the window. And the reason is this guide that helped me drill the PCL. On. For people who don't understand, when you're drilling that tunnel in the PCL, the artery is right, right behind, behind the knee, it, yeah. and it is very anxiety provoking to have this unwieldy guide you got a drill bit that's drilling straight for the artery it's you know you have to be very careful that you don't accidentally plunge through there's a lot that goes into that and man we were doing this case and i used this new pcl guide and it basically just got into the exact right position i was positive and it stayed there and it captured the i did not worry about the pin missing it so the pin goes right into the safety guide and i was like man that was that took something that used to be like you have to have 30 years experience to do a good job and made it like I could have done that on my first we didn't try. even need to use x-ray because yeah, you were looking exactly. direct visualization yeah. you saw it right there and so but that's the beauty of having your own place and then the internal splint right so that is really the big thing there's a new thing in ligament reconstruction where we use this suture that was developed by Arthrex and it's made out of Kevlar and it's just really really strong like it's this fiber tape right it's less of a round cylindrical it's tape. a flat seat, it's though. it's like a flat yeah. suture but it is so strong it's right. unbreakable. We back up the fixation with this thing, and it protects the graft while the graft is incorporating fully into the body over 18 months to two years. Sure. A lot of people don't realize when you get that graft, your body resorbs it and lays right. down its own tissue. And for that to fully take place takes a while. And having that internal seatbelt in there helps, helps hold it tight right. so that when it finally heals, you have a very you know well-functioning ligament reconstruction. That's a great example. You know, the other thing, too, is over the years, you're operating with other other doctors. Sure. And they, you know, we're all pretty smart guys and yeah. a lot of, and girls. And we have, uh, I have two daughters, so they're, they're, they're thinking <laughs> right. about maybe being a doctor. But the, the people develop ideas. You know, you do a case a hundred times. I mean, how many times have you seen me do something passing the suture around a coracoid and AC joint reconstruction. I mean, I've done that a million different ways and really just recently kind of landed on the way I like that's reproducible, that happens the same way every time. But then you take that knowledge and you can share it with other surgeons who are struggling in the same way, just like you bring knowledge to me and help me solve my problems. Right. And uh, I'll give you a great example. Another great example of that is um, the four corner fusions that you do. And again, that's a for for listeners, but you know, for your wrist, uh, for your scaphoid non-unions that you have to do, the staples that we use, easy, reproducible. Yeah. Yeah. I've taken the x-rays that you've done pre-op, post-op, and I've sent them out to um, our product managers. I'm like, hey guys, this is a really awesome, reproducible, yeah. low-profile, yeah. time-saving, bone-sparing, everything that you want, and your patients have done great, you've been confident in it. So I've done it both ways, right? Yeah, and people might be asking themselves, well, what's the difference between that and working at a hospital or through a hospital system? And you and I both know that... That implant wouldn't have been approved. They would not approve it because the hospital does a one-size-fits-all system. They would never approve you coming in with new things because, not. let's face it, not everything's a home run. We try some things. It doesn't work. Sure. But... Who's best able to make that determination? You and me together. We're the ones who are on the front lines doing this procedure all the time. Some hospital administrator that's never been in an operating, they don't know anatomy. They They don't know. They're going to look at you and say, okay, this code, uh, five years ago we used a couple screws, uh, is the same as using these four staples. Yeah, the two screws are cheaper, but it it took you 
two more hours to do it yeah. because you couldn't get the right trajectory or the bone started breaking or whatever. You know, well, the, you know, kind of the inside baseball thing too. I've had this happen where I was using staples. And your staples actually have a little spring to them, so they're compression. They, right? they when you put them in, they squeeze together That's and right. they compress That's the bone. Right. Which for That's people right. who don't know, understand orthopedics, in order to get bones to fuse, you need you compression. Got compression yeah. Well, the hospital just went and changed out the staples one time and replaced them with staples that didn't compress. And it's that inability to understand the nuance of you just took something that worked Without and replaced you. it with something that yeah. didn't work and you didn't even understand why nor did you check with me and why because you, say. yeah. you saved a couple of bucks right well now the patient's wrist isn't fusing well and we got to redo the whole thing right you know i don't know that that happened because i'm i'm pretty good at solving problems on the way but this is the way the hospital thinks right so it's i was just about to ask you in that situation there did you even know no. or were you like at the scrub saying no. like oh by the way doc like no, I was I, in the case. Where is it? Where's oh, stuff? we don't have that right. anymore. That's the worst. Yeah. yeah. That's the worst. Right then and there because, sure, you're skilled enough. Uh, you know, you've been doing this for so long. You can get around it. Yeah. But now, yeah. what are you doing? Now you're managing a situation that you didn't need to be in to begin with. If you had the product that you wanted to use that you knew in your hands was the best thing for your patients because you've seen it. You've done, you know, a hundred of them over time, however many you've done, you know, it, it just, it kills me when that happens in situations or when I have to go to a doctor, even as your rep, if we, Hey doc, I mean, in a hospital that I don't even cover you, you know, it's a different, you're the same vendor, same arthrex, different rep, but I had to call you and say, Hey man, um, sorry, you're not going to be able to use this implant. We have this implant again, outcome good i'm sure patient did great but it probably added 35 minutes to your case 45 minutes to your case or yeah whatever. Th- there's any number of problems this sure. just creates and the bottom line is you're disconnecting doctors and patients you're giving power to a third party that, that has, has no really clue. no specific understanding of a particular patient's issues and you get this one size fits all that is problematic with socialized medicine and i think we all know that we got the covid 19 virus going around i call it the wuhan china virus because we've always called viruses and a lot of infections based on the area that they've been discovered you know we got the hong kong flu we got german measles we got loss of fever we got ebola Rickettsia, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, um, the Spanish flu. I mean, this is kind of how it's done, and this sort of naming it COVID-19 is is unusual, and I don't like it. And the reason I don't like it is because it's involving a lot of politics and what you sure. know, sort of the same types of things that affect our free market healthcare are also affecting the way we manage COVID. And I'm going to take a little bit of time to discuss my feelings on the coronavirus outbreak. I knew about coronavirus. I knew something was going on probably in early December through my Twitter. I just, you know, I'm connected with a lot of people, doctors and politicians, and I mean, just a lot of different people like a lot of people are on Twitter. And so I know things. Uh, I'm also a doctor. And so it was interesting to me. So I heard that this was going on in China. And I remember maybe a lot of people do this uh, leaked Facebook 
uh, not you know, like somebody took their iPhone and went through an emergency room somewhere like in China. Facebook Live, or, or yeah, something you know, like something that, like that. Yeah. And there's just these yeah. body bags everywhere. And yeah. I thought to myself, ah, that looks a little sketchy to Suspect. me. I don't, that doesn't look yeah. exactly legit to me. Just little cues of you know, I've been in emergency rooms, I've been in hospitals, I've even been in ones that have sure. been overrun for various reasons, and it just it didn't look right to me, but. I took a mental note of it, and because I'm a free market guy and because I'm somebody who runs a business, I take care of patients, I get paid to solve problems and think about these things. So I went to my my staff and I said, listen, there's something going on in China. I think we might have a problem with masks and gloves and gowns and uh, you know certain medications. I started doing some investigation. I was really shocked to find out how much of my supply chain in medicine was dependent on China. So I sort of took precautions to mitigate that. And I understood coronavirus. I mean, I, I studied medicine. We studied coronavirus 28 years ago when I was in medical school. And one of the things looking back now was I have a perspective and a knowledge base just from being a doctor and being involved in this stuff that I right now, based on everything I've seen and all I know, I'm more nervous to fly than I am to go to work and take care of patients at the hospital because I have perspective on this. What I didn't realize is what I know intrinsically not a lot of people do know and the red line hysteria on the news all day every day is freaking people out including my wife i mean my wife is even challenging me on telling me i don't know what i'm doing and i'm not right and you know i'm not looking at this properly and yet when they came out that first day and said 2.5 million americans are going to die i was like that's not going to happen i knew for a fact Well, not for a fact. I knew very strongly that that was incredibly unlikely to happen. But what I did was I took normal precautions. Um, The mask thing. So you you and I both know medicine is a lot about the show. And when I say the show is, when I go and I look at a patient, I can look at the x-ray, look at the age of the patient, the sex, what's injured. I already know what it is. Sure. I already know what to do. But I don't just walk into the room and say, listen, Mr. Jones, uh, you're going to need a knee replacement and walk out. No. That's not a good show. you got to sit down. How you doing? We established that's called a doctor-patient relationship, relationship, which, by the way, that goes away. That's the part that goes away when you get into socialized medicine. You know what I mean? Right. That show is me trying to get you to trust me so that you'll come to me, and it takes a lot of effort on my part. So when I was looking at how I was going to manage this coronavirus Outbreak. I was thinking about the things that matter, washing hands, screening people at the door who were sick, keeping them out, normal, you know, I don't know that we need to be six feet away. I know people are looking at all these studies. Well, it goes this far and everything. There's a lot more than how far it goes in a mask to getting infected. There's a viral load that's different for every virus, meaning you have to have a certain amount of it to get into before you catch an infection. That's dependent on the patient's immune system, all this kind of stuff. So I'm taking all this into account. And one of the first things I realized was I wanted to use a mask in every setting. Now, I know from medical school that a typical surgical mask, viral particles are so small, they go in and out of that. So the mask is not necessarily holding it in. Seems like it's helpful because it does keep some of the bigger droplets away. But actually, I don't know that that matters. Nobody does. They're talking about it as if it does, but nobody knows. But it seems like a logical thing to do. Eh, You know, a mask, it's not going to hurt. Well, that's not necessarily true. If you put a mask on, and you and I both know this, and you're not used to it, that's very irritating. It causes post-nasal drip. You're touching your face and all that stuff. So there actually could be a situation where I'm looking at that going, you know, masks on people 
who are outside, maybe is not a good thing because they're touching their nose and then they're going to touch doorknobs and things of that nature. But this is me looking at this from a doctor's perspective. Right. I don't have a political interest in that. Sure. I just want to know how am I going to keep my family safe and keep my patients safe and keep working. So I made sort of these decisions. I realized there weren't going to be enough masks for everybody to have one in every interaction. So I had to prioritize, meaning I, I have a certain amount of masks. What can I do? So I have the person at my front door of all my offices wearing a mask and gloves, and it has a temperature. And they, before anybody comes into my office, we ask them, are you sick? Have you had any exposure? You know, right. the normal the questions normal that the guidelines. CDC put, right. yeah, the CDC guidelines. We take their temperature. We document it. We immediately take them to the the restroom. We wash, watch them wash their hands. Then we bring them out in the waiting room, and we keep them separated, okay? And then we go through our normal work up as a patient everything right. like that and like i say my my operation has been nearly fully functional the entire time we haven't had a single incident right this is me which i appreciate by yeah the way. and this is me <laughs> using common sense and i have to say i'm really 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 proud of my staff you know i talked to them when this thing first happened i said listen I'm in a situation where I'm going to protect you guys. You're all going to stay employed. None of you have to worry about that. I had some other, you know, some married folks, their spouse was laid off or whatever. I said, listen, man, when you go home, you, you, I'm plan, even if we get it shut completely down, you guys are going to be taken care of. But I need you guys to think about where we are in the food chain, meaning, you're, you're a customer of mine. If I don't work, you don't make money. That's right. The people that sell us food don't make money. That's right. The janitor who cleans up our places, they don't make money. And I it's said to these people, thing. I need you guys to do your best job ever because it's important that we fulfill our responsibility to the people who depend on us. And credit to my staff, we've been almost completely open the entire time, not a single incident. Now I'm. we've got more information. And it's funny to me, um, I, I obviously, I speak with doctors all the time, so I have information that other people are not privy to. So I can talk to doctors that are working in emergency rooms, that are working in ICUs from around the country, and what I'm hearing them tell me is they're not overrun. Now, I know New York and New Jersey are tough, and I am not by any means saying that there's no threat here. There clearly is. Sure. There's something going on. But how much of a threat? Everything pr produces a threat. When I get on a plane, if all of a sudden the risk of that plane going down was 25%, I would make different decisions than I make now. It wouldn't be flying as much, right? Right. Now, my understanding of coronavirus, number one, I know it's out in the world already. We know that um, it's not the kind of virus like an Ebola virus, a hemorrhagic fever, where basically everybody who comes in contact with it gets it and dies really fast. Quarantine works really well for that because it burns out and then you shut it down. But a coronavirus is not like that. A lot of people don't even know they're sick. And so it's very difficult. It's First of all, it's impossible to test everyone. Those tests are not infallible, you know, the, these antibody tests. So the, the bottom line is just if you understand epidemiology, you know that this thing is going to get out. So I think in the beginning it was a reasonable thing to do to sort of do this social distancing, which, by the way, there is no evidence that social distancing is solving our problem. New York and California implemented social distancing at roughly the same time. I think New York went three days sooner than California, but roughly the same time. But California has had 14 times fewer coronavirus infections than New York City or New York State. And that 
if if there was a correlation between social distancing and getting the disease, you would think that that would have an effect. But yet you have, re, you know, very different infection rates in California and New York, and yet they're both implementing social distancing. There's a lot of other count, confounding factors. Sure. So uh, in my mind, washing hands, you know, we're doing a lot disinfecting. Just my understanding of coronavirus, it's more it's a type of virus that's a little bit more susceptible to disinfectants than maybe some other viruses. Um, the type of virus that it is, is, you know, people have to understand that when you think about virus, it's a lot of different things. You know, it's not one thing. Ebola hemorrhagic virus is different than uh, HIV retrovirus. Right, you know, an strains. HIV retrovirus gets incorporated. It, it has a, a special enzyme called reverse transcriptase. So it's, its RNA gets converted to DNA, and then that DNA goes into your cells and stays there forever. You can't get it out. So that's what makes that scary. And I remember when I first got out, you know, we didn't really have a great understanding of how HIV worked. And I can remember, you know, wanting to be in a hazmat suit. And now over a long period of time, I stick myself with a needle and I know I'm okay because you just, you, you don't get enough of a viral load with that kind of stuff. So I have a perspective about what to be afraid of. So when you look at respiratory viruses, you're talking about eight to 10 different viruses that cause what we all refer to as the flu every year. And some of those are coronaviruses all the year. I think many of us have probably had the experience where we felt fluish, didn't feel good. You go to the doctor, you get a test and it's negative. Oh, well, you don't have the flu and you go home. Well, maybe it was coronavirus or one of these other eight to 10 viruses. The other thing that we're starting to see now, too, is as they're coming out with more testing and we're starting to do these randomized testing, they're seeing that in California, 30% of people have already been exposed to the coronavirus and they're already immune to it. And when we look back on it, there's reporting from California that they were seeing a this is before the coronavirus came out. So this is prior to November mm -hmm. of last year that they were seeing a tough flu season that they were you know people were getting sick and what and there was also a large population of Chinese from the Wuhan province that were flying into California and what we believe is that the virus was already out there and they're developing what we call herd immunity which basically is people are getting exposed they become immune and then if you're immune and David's immune, then you're kind of make a block for me. They can, the virus can't really get to me right. because, and this is kind of how this herd immunity works. And that's what we think is going on in California and probably helps to explain the, uh, the difference in the mortality rates in New York City versus California. The other thing is they have revised their models to believe that there's now going to be about 60,000 deaths in the United States as a result of coronavirus, which incidentally is roughly how many people died of the flu in 2017 and 2018. And, you know, I hear this argument, the flu is not a good model, the flu is a good model, whatever. The, the flu is different than the coronavirus, no question about it. But what's important to me is look at the measures that we're taking to handle coronavirus. I mean, a complete shutdown of the economy, 10 million plus people out of work. I mean, we are really headed for some tough economic times. And then the flu virus, we don't even, you know, half the people don't even get a flu shot. So we need to start making some more rational risk assessments. And like I said, in my practice, we've done some common sense screening. You know, I don't let people cough in my face. I personally have not worn a mask other than when I'm in the operating room. There's some people in my office that want to wear masks. And I, you know, I'm, sure. I'm here, you know, I'm not here to tell people not to have anxiety. I'm here to provide 
provide information to people so that they can make their own decisions. And, you know, I have a lot of knowledge in this area. And I'm, as I said, I'm more nervous to fly than I am of getting coronavirus. Here's the other thing that I think is really important to note. We talk about anecdotal medicine you know, anecdotal. This is this this term has kind of come up a lot with the use of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. So, uh, I know that there's a huge political um, motivation here because it makes absolutely no sense to me that anybody would poo-poo using hydroxychloroquine. If I was to come to you and say, Baba Ganoush, I think Tylenol might might help you block coronavirus. I up. mean, would you take it? Hook me up. Of course we would. We all would. I mean, <laughs> you know, me Tylenol yeah. is a tried and true medicine. <clears throat> sure. It's got minimal side effects. It's super safe. Well, guess what? Hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin are exactly the same thing right. in the sense that we've been using the medicine forever. We know it's got a very low risk profile. It's a very safe drug. It's used all the time. And doctors are prophylactically treating themselves. That, to me, is always, you know, see who the people who know what's up and see what they do for themselves. That's always the way you know what the right way to go right. is, right? What informed people do for themselves, that's the thing that's to do. Well, there's do. no doctor who isn't taking, even if they're on TV saying, well, you know, we got to wait for these double-blind crossover studies. They're taking it themselves. The other thing is, when I'm talking to my doctor friends around the country and really around the world and communicating with them, they're telling me, listen, man, there's a lot of very good anecdotal evidence that hydroxychloroquine is effective. The other thing I think that's really important for people to understand is we're able to look at the results from Italy. And we know that 90% of the people in Italy had one comorbidity that died from coronavirus. And 50%, over half, had three comorbidities. Um, There's a new report out in Bloomberg that... um, 99% 99% of the deaths in of coronavirus, people who died from coronavirus, had um, other comorbidities. Right. They documented the average age in Italy was 79.5, and all deaths under 40 were males with serious medical conditions. Right. So I think we have enough information here, meaning we know who's vulnerable, the old, people with other medical conditions. Um, we have a treatment that's possible, hydroxychloroquine, and we can kind of get into the politics of that. But the decisions that we've made have not been a zero-sum game. There are enormous consequences economically. And people, you know, I don't know a lot of people who can afford to not get paid for three months and still survive. So, you know, we need to start opening up the economy I believe that we should start allowing people that are younger, that are healthier, uh, to go back to work and implement reasonable precautions. Wash your hands. Sure. You know, I'm I'm sort of agnostic about the masks. I, I'm not sure that they help, but I'm not opposed to it. I, don't I wear just a mask. yeah, I, I just I just realized there aren't enough masks for everybody to have one every time. I don't wear a mask. Yeah. Baba Ganoush, I got to have you back on this show again. This hour just blew by. It was My an man. awesome yeah. conversation, Great. and we Thank got a you. lot to talk about. Um, I hope that helped everybody. I, I'll, I'll always kind of get into the coronavirus and my my observations and my updates about what's going on and sort of the inside baseball stuff. I want you all to join us next time on the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. Today my guest was Sarush Golchin. We had a great time. Everybody stay safe out there, and I'll see you next time. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.